0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus
1: in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Dr. Reshma Jagsi, who received the Carol Hollinshead Inspire Award for Excellence in Promoting Equity and Social Change at CEW's 2020 Advocacy Symposium. Dr. Jagsi is the Newman Family Professor and Deputy Chair in the Department of Radiation Oncology and Director of the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences in Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Jagsi, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and share about your journey to becoming an oncologist and teaching doctor?
2: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to join you. So I am indeed a professor here at the University of Michigan and director of our Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences in Medicine. I'm also a practicing radiation oncologist who specializes in seeing uh, patients with breast cancer. Um, I have a fairly complicated journey to becoming an oncologist and teaching doctor uh, in that I started off um, being very eager to pursue service to others and social justice. And so I went through a number of volunteer experiences. My very first volunteer experience actually was in high school. Every summer I volunteered at the VA hospital. And as I interacted with veterans who had served our country and heard about their contributions, I became really eager to do my part. And so when I got to college, the first thing I did was begin volunteering at Greater Boston Legal Services, which was specifically in the division that focused on preventing eviction, basically preventing homelessness, and worked with the clients and the lawyers in that public interest law firm and really enjoyed that work. And then later in college, I began teaching in the Boston Public Schools. I taught civics, and then during medical school, I actually taught reproductive health and was very committed to what teachers can do to promote social change and really found all of those volunteer experiences to be so rewarding. But I kept thinking back to the relationships that I had seen between the veterans and their physicians in those summers at the VA hospital in high school, and I decided that there really was no single profession that i would enjoy more than that of practicing medicine although i also recognize that i would want to do something more than practicing in the clinic alone, that I would want to translate those efforts into something broader that affected society, and that's what led me ultimately to a practice in academic medicine where I get to teach, I get to encourage those who have broad interests in promoting social justice to achieve what they envision, and oncology has been such a special subspecialty for me because I am the sort who likes to know everything about the area that I'm practicing. And so it's hard to do that as a generalist. It's much easier to do that as a specialist. And so being focused on breast cancer specifically has allowed me to see and draw inspiration from the strengths of my patients and the challenges that they've faced to try to develop interventions, both clinical treatments and social supports, that can help future patients have a somewhat more straightforward journey to survivorship. So it's been just a really wonderful career.
1: Excellent. Based on what you've said, it seems like a natural fit then for you to become the director of the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences and Medicine. What drove you to take that position?
2: That's a great question. So when I arrived here, there were two separate centers. There was a Center for Behavioral and Decision Sciences in Medicine, and there was a program in bioethics, and they were separate. And they were joined together a few years after I arrived. And I was one of the few physicians who was actually part of both of those groups. Both of those groups included not just MDs, but also PhDs and lawyers and individuals with other forms of training who were interested in issues at the intersection of medical practice and clinical care and society. And I really enjoyed working with both of those groups of scholars. And so once the center became merged and they ultimately looked for a director, it was a natural opportunity for me to take on this wonderful role. The Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences and Medicine is a center within the medical school, but we actually have members from schools across the university. We bring people together with a shared interests in both serving the medical school in terms of its teaching, in terms of its research activities, in terms of its clinical care. Of course, we were very active during COVID-19. We have such an opportunity also then to draw from that service to a single academic medical center to inspire research that we can disseminate more broadly and serve as an exemplar for how institutions can promote really thoughtful, deliberate approaches to integrating bioethics and social science in the practice of medicine. So it's been a really neat position, and I'm very fortunate to work with the members of my center and our wonderful staff.
1: So it sounds like the work of the center, because it's so interdisciplinary in nature, could have very broad implications across society. Could you describe an initiative that's been launched out of the center?
2: Absolutely. So one of the areas that we're very interested in is understanding how the move to a rapid learning healthcare system is received by patients in the community so We know now that with advances in technology and electronic medical records, that information generated in the course of routine delivery of clinical care results in information, big data, that can be harnessed to not only serve that individual patient, but also drive quality improvement and medical research that can actually create what we call a learning healthcare system. And that virtuous cycle depends very much on the acceptability of using that information that wasn't contributed by patients for the purposes of quality improvement or research for those purposes. And so what we really need to do is understand how the blurring of that sort of traditional distinction between research and clinical care can lead to new ethical frameworks and how that's received by society. And so we at the center have been and partnered with our colleagues in the Department of Learning Health Sciences at the medical school. We have NIH funding to engage with the American Society of Clinical Oncology to launch what we call a deliberative democracy study whereby citizen representatives of the patient community recruited from oncology practices from all across the country came together for day-long retreats where they sat through lectures by expert colleagues of mine and heard about both the promise of a learning healthcare system and how, you know, for example, having information of that scale can help us actually mitigate disparities. Because if we know that there are certain groups that are smaller in number or not as well represented in clinical trial databases, we might be able to learn from the real-world experience of using treatments with them. And we can talk about the promise of learning healthcare systems, but then also of course the risks and the you know, data confidentiality and privacy concerns and we can talk about data use and governance considerations. We can talk about questions about notification and consent. What are people's preferences about how this might be approached. And so in that way, our center has actually generated some of the most important information that has been used not only within our institution, but also by national societies to guide how they are approaching the collection and use of big data in this way. So that's just one example of the kind of work that we do.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like it's trying to balance transparency with patients, with medical ethics, with really trying to advance the field. And that is a difficult thing those are three major things that are, you know, contentious in any area, nonetheless when it comes to healthcare and, you know, knowing past studies like Tuskegee, how data has been represented and studies have, you know, affected marginalized communities, I can only imagine like the type of remarkable findings you might have about how mm-hmm. we can, you know, advance the work of transparency in healthcare. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And build trust in communities that don't have trust by demonstrating our trustworthiness as leaders and institutions, right? I think that's the fundamental challenge that is before us. And our center, because we bring together people from so many different disciplinary backgrounds, is so well positioned to do that because we're not simply skilled in clinical medicine or sociology or psychology or bioethics or law or you know we have individuals who have expertise in all of those areas and so our work is enriched by all of those perspectives
1: yeah so how do you build trust how do you kind of represent and undo harm from the past among communities like that seems like an impossible mission
2: Yeah, and I think it's through community engagement, right? And Mm -hmm. so
1: that is why
2: when the American Society of Clinical Oncology charged its ethics committee that I happened to lead at the time with focusing on this particular subject, my response was, well, we as the ethics committee, or even my center of a bunch of experts, is not going to be able to answer this question. What we have to do is reach out to the communities themselves Mm -hmm. and to make sure that we get diverse representative voices in the room and then we do careful qualitative analysis of what they tell us from their lived experiences to guide us in how we can best serve them.
1: Mm-hmm. And then demonstrating our trustworthiness that way by hearing the voices and respecting them um, and then letting that guide the work moving forward.
2: Exactly, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That in itself is something I'm sure you're proud of, but when you look back over your career, is there a particular time point that stands out that you're particularly proud of?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that The time point that stands out the most is actually the current time point. You know, ever since the disruptions of the COVID pandemic, which really, I mean, it transformed the world for all of us overnight, right? And within academic medicine, we went from, you know, delivering clinical care and teaching and doing research in person to literally having our laboratories shuttered, having our research staff at home, having clinical care delivered virtually, communicating really complex and difficult um, diagnoses and treatment plans over a screen or in person with a mask covering more than 50% of the face that we had previously used to communicate non-verbally with our patients, you know, important reassurance and, you know, emotional support instead of having students and residents within our proximity. You know, we had uh, students and residents all of a sudden sometimes, you know, performing their duties in a different room or in a different building from us. And so that was incredibly challenging, and of course, a large number of ethical dilemmas arose, right? How do we prioritize across all of the research studies we have open when all of a sudden we really can't accomplish everything that we could before? How do we communicate about scarcity of resources, and how do we prioritize certain treatments or patients? How do we address issues of supporting our patients when we have these very strict visitor policies? So many changes that occurred almost overnight, and our center was really, I think, integral both within our institution's response to serve our community, and also as an exemplar for other institutions with our members being leaders in a number of ethics committees different professional societies, writing about these issues in the peer-reviewed literature, rapidly disseminating things like we had a postdoctoral fellow in our center who created a COVID communication guide for patients with cancer, giving specific language for the types of communication challenges that were arising in the first few months of the pandemic. All of those interventions make me extremely proud of what our center has done in this unprecedented, incredibly challenging time that we're living through right now.
1: Yeah, How did you grapple with the uncertainty throughout COVID? I think you just described a whole lot of ethical dilemmas. And then on top of that was the uncertainty about COVID itself, about responses, about vaccines. Did that play a role at all in your work?
2: The uncertainty has been so challenging, and it has also taken a toll on The wellness of those on the front lines, those who are most directly exposed, not just to the virus, but to the human suffering that it has caused. And that uncertainty has magnified the trauma of this experience. Uh, And I think, you know, even now, there is so much uncertainty about where things will go from here. But finally, we do have hope. And I am so inspired by the way that I've seen our community come together, you know, micro communities and also the community as a whole, trying to articulate our values and support one another. So the uncertainty has been really hard, but it has, I think, been mitigated by the certainty that we are all in the same storm, even if we're not all in the same boat.
1: I love that quote.
2: Yeah, that's from advanced, that's that- from our advanced group. They use that and and I think it's so important because of course different individuals are having such different experiences right now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned stress and self-care. How have you personally managed self-care during the pandemic?
2: Yeah. So for the first time, I know this is going to sound really naive to your audience. For the first time, I discovered the importance of mindfulness and mindfulness techniques. It's really not something I was familiar with. So I'm very grateful, actually, to the CEW Plus for having introduced me to the importance of mindfulness. And I've actually learned to meditate. Again, probably sounds really naive to have learned to meditate only in the past year, but I did. And, you know, the flexibility of some of the scheduling that has occurred has actually allowed me some opportunities to engage in self-care that I never was able to before. So the fact that I'm not flying to a different city or country every week to attend academic conferences or give talks has actually allowed me to be home and to be present and to be mindful and to go for walks with my husband through the Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And, you know, I think that some of the forced being outdoors has been very good for me because I'm kind of an indoorsy gal. And um, the pandemic has forced me to have my social interactions outside and I've discovered nature. So, So that's been very good.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm hearing a lot of conversations about the positive things that we've learned throughout the pandemic. You mentioned the flexibility of scheduling and how it's allowed you to do meditation, to go on walks. What are other practices that you think would be great for people to continue beyond the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think that it's very important to recognize that the flexibility that I described is a privilege and not everyone benefited from flexibility. And Mm so, you know, yes, I've had the opportunity to engage in meditation and mindfulness because I'm not on an airplane now. But many people, and we know disproportionately so women, also saw an incredible increase in other responsibilities that that Mm -hmm. they might have previously been able to rely on others to provide, to outsource, you know, caregiving of family and other responsibilities that really ate up any time. And the flexibility just was Mm -hmm. dwarfed by the Increase in responsibilities, and you know, many people lost their jobs altogether again, women more so than anyone without that necessarily really bouncing back. And so, I think we have to be very aware that although there's been a silver lining for some of those of us with privilege, that has not been felt by everyone. But, things that I would hope that academic medicine could retain from this would be a real awareness of the importance of the vitality and the well-being of the workforce. It's something that we were recognizing even before the pandemic, but I think we really recognize it now that, you know, physicians are human beings, nurses are human beings. We have our own needs, and in order to serve others, you know, it's that old adage of put your own oxygen mask on first before you try to help others, you know, in I think the traditional culture of medicine, we have been taught to put our needs last, to focus on the patient, to focus on others, to power through. And I think that it's important for us to be kind, particularly to those who are new joining our profession, to permit them to put on their own oxygen masks and to find ways of doing that to facilitate that, you know, to have some flexibility and not just flexibility, but actual manageable workloads that would permit exercise and sleep and mindfulness and engagement with family and all of those other things that are so important as part of the human experience.
1: Yeah. Final question here. It relates to your last point about students in medicine of, I mean, what advice do you have for students setting out to pursue a role in medicine?
2: Yeah. So it has never been clearer what, A tremendous impact the medical profession can have than during this pandemic, right? And so, you know, I think a lot of younger people are being inspired to consider a career in medicine, which is really wonderful because there really is nothing like it. As I said, I, you know, went through a bunch of volunteer experiences and kept coming back to that relationship between physicians and patients. And the thing that I think I've learned um, in my career is that. You know, I was taught when I was a doctoral student in social policy that, you know, medicine is a privileged profession that has outsized influence on society, that we can be leaders in addressing challenges that seem like they're coming from outside of medicine, but that nevertheless affect health. Those social determinants of health, those are all in our lane, so to speak, right? This is our lane. Social policy is our lane because, in the end, medical care influences only a small part of human health. And social policy influences so much more about that WHO definition of health, right? A, mm-hmm. a state of complete physical, mental, and social well being. And what's wonderful about medicine is that you get to have those incredibly satisfying relationships with individual human beings as their physician and you get to inhabit a profession that has a voice to advocate for the changes that we need to promote health more broadly. I just can't think of a better profession, and I'm so excited that so many young people are, are thinking about joining it.
1: Excellent. Dr. Jagsi, I'm so honored to have gotten to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.